in Hebrews this afternoon. We're in Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to move actually through the whole of the chapter in our time together. Um, obviously, we've just had a power cut, so there's no screen. So the, the Bible passage will not be up on the screen. But I would encourage you, please open your Bibles or turn them on if it's on a device. And if you don't have one, then there are some on the table at the back. Um, so please do help yourself to one of those. And if you're not sure where Hebrews is, it's okay. There's an index. You can look it up. It's really no worry. It's pretty near to the back, uh, but you can use the index to find that so that you know where we're reading from this afternoon. So we're continuing in Hebrews 3, and, and I don't know how you've been finding it so far, but I love the book of Hebrews, <laughs> although I don't always find it easy. And It's a very rich book packed with some incredible truths about our wonderful saviour. And we've been enjoying those over these last few weeks together. It's a book that was written to encourage Christians like you and I to keep going in their faith. Not to give up. Not to turn away, but to persevere. Not to walk away from Jesus when the going gets tough, but to see him for who he is. The glorious, beautiful king of heaven who loves them and is for them and to see in him again and again and again the hope that we have through his life death and resurrection a hope that is far greater than anything we could find in anyone or anything else and so we're going to continue in the book today and and, and we're going to see something of the glory and beauty and wonder of our saviour we're going to be reminded of the hope that we have in him but one of the other things we find in the book of hebrews uh, on a number of occasions are warnings and challenges and actually the passage we're going to read this afternoon contains some of that warning and some of that challenge and actually it's it's not an easy passage in some ways it's not the most comfortable of passages and so i've wrestled with it this week as i've prepared but it is god's word to us And so it's vital that we read it and seek to understand it and see how it applies to us this afternoon. This is is the, the joy and challenge of preaching through whole books of the Bible. If you just pick a topic, then you can always pick something that is makes everyone smile. (laughs) But when you when you preach through a book, you, you can't avoid the more challenging passages. And we've got one of those this afternoon. And so I want to pray for us before we read it. And then we're going to get into it. So, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us by your spirit through your word. I pray that you would help us to be good listeners to what you would say to us this afternoon. Lord, I pray that you would guard us, protect us against being hard-hearted or stubborn as we listen. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't take offence, Lord, but that we would be tender-hearted and we would hear what you would want to speak to us this afternoon. Lord, we don't just want to skip through to the easier things, but we want to hear the warnings because you've placed them there for our good. You've placed them there out of love, out of a desire that we wouldn't settle for lesser things, but that we would keep our eyes fixed on you. And so I pray, Jesus, this afternoon, would you help us by your Spirit to keep our eyes fixed on you. Holy Spirit, would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
Amen. Good. Well, we're not going to read the whole passage up front, but we're going we're gonna to kind of read and pause and apply as we go. So we're in Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and this is what we read. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, straight up front, we have a therefore. <laughs> We've said this lots of times, when there's a therefore in scripture, we have to ask what it's there for. It's generally referring back to what has just been said. And this is one of those cases. It's pointing us back to what we've just been reading in chapters 1 and 2. Namely, this, that Jesus Christ is the definitive word of the Father. That he's the exact representation of the Father. If you want to know what the Father's like, you look at Jesus. That he's the creator of all things. That he's worshipped by all creation and by angels. He's the one who paid the price for our sins and is now seated in glory, ruling and reigning. And as we looked at last week in chapter 2, he's the one who brings us to glory. If we hope in him, brings us to the Father as co-heirs, as family. And then we receive our first instruction, brothers and sisters. We read on in verse 1, Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is almost a repetition of what we read at the start of chapter 2. Where we're exhorted to pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So that we don't drift away from God. And what did we say it was that we had heard in that context? Jesus, the living word who spoke the final revelation of God the Father through his life, death and resurrection. We pay much closer attention to Jesus. We keep looking to him, not to other things. We keep looking to him so that we won't drift away. Brothers and sisters, Christians, we must look to Jesus. We must think on, dwell on, consider day after day after day our Saviour, Jesus. Jesus who is our Apostle. It's a strange word, isn't it? What does it mean? It's not not something we generally use in modern day English. Well, it means sent one. Generally sent with a message from God. Jesus was sent from God the Father to bring the word of God to us, to be the word of God for us. Through his life, death and resurrection, he's our apostle and our priest. Who are the priests? They're the ones who would go between God and man to bring people into the presence of God, to restore connection, restore relationship between God and his people through sacrifices. Jesus, our priest, who fulfills that priestly role by bringing us to God and restoring relationship with God through his perfect sacrifice. It is who we look to. We must consider him. We keep looking to him. We read on from verse 2. We keep looking to him who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses 
was also faithful in all of God's house. Jesus, our apostle and priest, the word of God sent by God the Father to us to bring us to relationship with our Father, our Lord and Saviour, our King and our brother was faithful, perfectly faithful to his heavenly Father. And before we get to any contrast between the two of them, Moses enters the scene and we're told that Moses too was faithful. The writer quotes from Numbers 12. You've noticed as we go through Hebrews, we get a lot of Old Testament quotes. There's a few today. This first one comes from Numbers 12, where Moses is declared by God himself to be faithful. Moses is exceptional. (laughs) And the first readers of Hebrews would have got that. To them, Moses was a big deal. We probably don't think that much about Moses. But we need to understand in the context, Moses was a big deal. We read in Numbers 12, these words that are being quoted here. In in their context, it says, When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. (laughs) Like Moses basically had a hotline to God. God says, I don't speak to him cryptically or in dreams or visions. I invite Moses as a representative as one who's faithful in my house to speak face to face. It's amazing. Moses was exceptional among all of Israel. He was exceptional in the house of God. The first reader of Hebrews would have had a very high view of Moses. Some of the reasons why. Well, firstly, they knew this. God said, I speak to him face to face. He's not like the rest of the prophets. Secondly, Moses was the one who led them out of captivity in Egypt. He was the one who led them out of slavery. He was the one who led them through the Red Sea on dry land. He was the one through whom God gave them the law. When the writer then leads into saying that Jesus is greater or worthy of more glory than Moses... It's not a slight on Moses. It's not belittling him. It's saying Moses was exceptional. He was amazing. You all know that. But Jesus, he was so much better. And we're going to get this contrast now. That, but we have to understand how exceptional Moses was for us to see how much greater Jesus is. Okay, we get these arguments quite a lot in Scripture. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. You say one thing that no one's going to argue with that's true, and everyone's like, yes, so Moses was great and faithful in all of God's household. And the readers of this book that first received it would have read that and been like, yes, Moses. (laughs) He was faithful. What a hero. What a ledge, Moses. And while everyone's doing that, the writer to the Hebrews comes off the back of it and says, but how much greater is Jesus? How much more worthy of glory is Jesus? And, and so I want to say to you today, Moses probably isn't the deal for you. 
But I'm sure there are other things, other people in your life that you would think of and you'd be like, that's, like, that's the deal. Family, your work. I, I don't know what it is for you. But the writer to the Hebrews would want to say to you, so much better. <laughs> like whoever you know, whatever you've seen, whatever you think is praiseworthy or deserving of glory, Jesus is more so. So much more so. We read on why from verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. See, you see what the writer to Hebrews is doing here. Moses was faithful in God's house, as a member of God's house, one of God's people. And he was faithful as a servant. Servants are dependent on the provision of their masters, aren't they? He, he didn't have anything of his own in terms of sustaining the house. He was dependent on the resource of the master. That's, that's how it works with servants. He was faithful with what God had given him. He was faithful in the house. But Jesus Christ, by contrast, is faithful not in the house, but over the house as a son. He built it. He rules over it. And he's not dependent on anyone or anything else. He's not dependent on his house. That's not how it works. He provides for it. That's what the, the son, the heir, is going to do. Yeah, as the heir, all the wealth of the house, all the provision, it, it's all rightfully his. And so Moses was a servant, but Jesus rules over the house as a son who provides for it, who cares for it. That's the role of a son to, to secure its future. The future of the household is in the hands of the son, the heir. Out of his wealth, he's going to secure and provide for his household. That's the picture we have here. And so Jesus is, there's no comparison, right? He's so much greater than Moses. And he's so much greater than anyone who serves in the household of God. Moses was a faithful member of the house, but Jesus built the house. Jesus sustains the house. Jesus provides for the house. The security of the house rests on Jesus. What's the house? Or who's the house? We read on. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Christians, brothers and sisters, who share in a heavenly calling. We're his house. Those who trust in him are his house. 
This is amazing, isn't it? So what we've just said about what Christ does, the Son, over the house, is true for you. He cares for you. He cares for us as his house. He's sustaining us, building us, providing for us, loving us. See, no, no good son is reckless with his household, is he? Is it, I mean, A, it's not in his interest, but he cares for his house. He provides for, he sustains, he loves. If you're in Christ, that's how he is towards you. It's how he is towards us together. It's so important that we grasp that. It cost us encouragement to us earlier. You're not here by accident. You're here because he's building. You're here because he cares. You're here because he's providing. You're here because he's sustaining. He's so worthy of our praise, isn't he? That's, that's what this is supposed to lead us to. It's supposed to lead us to lift our eyes, to say, wow, Jesus, you're amazing. No one compares to you, Jesus. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your care of us. Thank you for the way you're sustaining us. Thank you, Jesus, for the hope that we have in you. Thank you that our future is secure in you. We read, we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. There's an if, and it's an interesting one. But it's a critical one, and we need to be sure we've understood it. So you could read it and think, ah, we're his house is conditional on us doing something. We're his house if we do something. You could read it that way. That's not actually the structure of the sentence. And I want to warn you against reading it that way. Because then you get into the territory where you start to think you're earning your salvation. You start to think you're earning your place as a Christian. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's by his work. So that no one might boast. It's a gift of God. So that none might boast. So what is it saying? It's not saying if you do this, you become the house. If you stay stay faithful and hold fast, you become the house, you become a holy brother, you earn a heavenly calling. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying, if you share in this heavenly calling, if you are the household, then you will hold fast. It's indicative. It's saying those who are saved will hold fast. In other words, being a Christian is going to look like something. It, it has an impact when we meet with Jesus, when we look to him, when we hope in him, when he takes out our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh that beats for him. You know, we read in scripture, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We have new desires. It looks like something. There's a change that takes place. It's not just about saying a prayer and securing your ticket to heaven. If you are in Christ, it will be evident in the way that you hold on to Jesus as your hope. In the way that you keep looking to him. That's what this passage is saying. Saying, 
those who are in his house are going to do this because of who they are. And with that comes the warning. We read from verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and, and just before we read this, that is such an important line that we cannot miss. The writer to Hebrews is about to quote from Psalm 95. But who does he attribute it to? He didn't say the psalmist or David. What does he say? He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. He, He attributes Old Testament scripture to God, speaking the word of God. And rightly so. That's how we need to view it. Scripture is God's word to us. Yes, spoken through people, but spoken by God for us. God speaking by his spirit says these words. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Here we have our warning. And the crux of this warning is all about the heart. See, the charge leveled against the Israelites who rebelled against God in the wilderness was this. They go astray in their heart. They have not known or loved my ways. This isn't actually primarily about their behavior or their grumbling. That that was just evidence of something deeper. Their grumbling and their behavior was the outworking of what was going on in their hearts they did not love God he did not have their affections they didn't treasure him above all and consequently they longed after other things and they grumbled against him and so God said they wouldn't inherit the promised land the rest he had for them And that warning comes to us. The writer to Hebrews takes it, God's word, and applies it to us, Christians, professing Christians, and says, take care, brothers and sisters. Remember who the focus, his audience is? He said at the start, brothers and sisters who share in a holy calling, those who profess Christ. Take care that you don't have an unbelieving heart. Take care that you don't have a heart that is not steeped in and renewed in the hope of the gospel. Because if you do, it will lead you away from God. You see the trajectory of the book of Hebrews as it unfolds week by week? See, in chapter 2, we were reminded, keep looking to Jesus. Keep fixing your gaze on him. Keep delighting in him. Keep remembering the good news of his life, death and resurrection so that you won't drift away. So that you won't be swept away by the currents of culture and of this life. 
That's, that's the picture of drifting, to float on by, to be carried along on the currents of something. Keep looking to him so that you don't drift. And now we're warned in chapter 3, be mindful of Jesus. Consider him. Consider how amazing he is. Consider how he cares for and provides for his household, how much better than anyone or anything else he is. Consider him, keep your hope in him so that you won't be led astray by your heart. See, this isn't now just drifting, this is being led astray and led away from God by your heart, by your desires. How do we respond? But the writer goes on from verse 13, but exhort one another to take care that you're not led away, that you don't have those unbelieving hearts. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says, guys, this isn't a solo endeavor. Warn one another. That's why God sets us in community, in church. It's why it's so important that we're surrounded by brothers and sisters who will keep reminding us of the hope we have in him, who will keep pointing us back to him. We need one another. In God's wisdom, he's put us together. Part of the reason why is that we need our brothers and sisters to exhort us, to remind us of the hope of the gospel, to lovingly come alongside us and say, you've let your gaze drift. You're settling for lesser things. Remember Jesus. Consider Jesus. He's so much better. He really is. The hope he offers is so much better than what you're settling for. We need one another to stir us out of apathy, to point us again to him, to stop us from being hardened in the deceitfulness of sin. We need one another to wake each other up sometimes. That's why we're doing gospel fluency together. We're trying to learn as a church community how to speak the truths of the gospel into one another's lives. Trying to learn as a church community how we do this, that we might exhort one another to prevent our hearts from being hardened and us being led astray by the deceitfulness of sin. See, over time, left to our own devices... If we let our gaze drift and we stop looking to him, what happens? We begin to excuse our sin. We get comfortable with it. We do it more. Where once we felt a pang of conscience, it's dulled. Paul warns in one of his letters about dulling our conscience through sin, leading to shipwrecking our faith. This is what the writer to Hebrews is warning against here. It's the warning that we need to hear we become calloused and hardened and numbed and instead of repenting and turning back to Jesus, we begin believing the lie that sin will ultimately fulfill us. And we're led away. That's this warning. And it's a warning we need to hear and we need one another to help us see the foolishness and danger in living like that. Because it's not going to fulfill you. It's not going to save you. It's not going to satisfy you. We need one another. And, and maybe for some today, even hearing this is that wake-up call. 
Maybe for some, this is that moment that will help prevent your heart from being hardened. Where it's begun to crust over that will break through the shell. You think, oh Lord, I don't want to settle for that. Jesus, I'm looking to you again. Coming to you again. I want to be satisfied in you. Don't ignore the warning if that's you. I want to encourage you, return to him. Look to him. Delight in him. There's an invite to come, to hope in him, to turn away from sin. There's a day when it will be too late for that, actually, but today is not that day, and that's one of the encouragements we have in this passage. It's like, warn one another, exhort one another, while this is today, while it's today. It means it's a day of salvation. It means it's not too late for you. If you're hearing this warning, it's not too late for you. There's an invite to come. Guys, again, we looked a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, at the first warning in the book of Hebrews in chapter 2, where we were encouraged to to think on him, to fix our eyes. And I I, I said then, this isn't a hard or heavy burden, okay? The, The call to stop the hardness of our hearts is not meet every requirement of the law, guys, pull your socks up, read your Bibles more, work harder, be better, do more. That, that isn't what this says. This isn't a hard or heavy call. This isn't a long list of rules to keep and things to do. No, it's simply this. Look to him. Consider him. Hope in him. Trust in him. Keep looking to and loving Jesus. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's what it says in verse 14 as we read on. Again, let's just quickly look at the structure of that sentence for. It's referring back to what's just been said about not letting our hearts get hardened to Jesus. For we have come to share in Christ, to partake in him. To be those who are the sons and daughters who are being brought to heaven, to glory because of Jesus. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence to him firm to the end. Here's the second if. As the writer restates his point and it's just like the first one. It's even clearer here. We have come to share in Christ. Past tense. We have come to share in Christ. Past tense. It has been done. It has been secured. It cannot therefore depend on a future event of holding fast to the end. It's not our holding fast that secures us. It's his finished work. But holding on is what those who share in Christ will do. That's, that's, that's what this verse means. It's the teaching of Scripture. A sign that you are in Christ is that you hold on to him. That you treasure him. That you hold your confidence in him. Conversely, if you don't, actually it's a sign you're not in him. Ultimately. We read on from verse 15, as it is said today, 
if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. We can't miss this. This is so important for us to hear. Who were they that hardened their hearts in disbelief and disobedience and walked away? What does it say? Who was it that were condemned by their unbelief? They were the ones who'd heard God's voice, but chosen to ignore it. They were the ones who had been led by Moses out of slavery in Egypt and known God's rescue, had been delivered through the Red Sea, safely on dry land, but who had then grumbled against God and his provision. Guys, there's a really important parallel picture for us here that the writer to Hebrews and actually God, as he speaks through his word, wants us to see. See, remember, Jesus is better than Moses. That's where we started this chapter. And it flows through now. Jesus speaks a better word than Moses spoke to the people. He brings a better deliverance than the deliverance they experienced from slavery in Egypt. Deliverance from our sin and death. He makes a better provision for his people than God's people experienced in a temporal sense in the wilderness. He's better. He's so much better. He's infinitely better. And what we have in here is infinitely better. Yet this warning is here for those who've heard the good news of Jesus. This warning here, remember who it's written to. Brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling. This is written to professing Christians who have made some kind of response. Jesus, who is better than Moses, has slid us out of slavery to sin, not simply Egypt. Their deliverance through the Red Sea is a picture of the waters of baptism. Maybe even then people who've been baptised, but who've begun to grumble against God and who have grown cold in their hearts towards Jesus. Instead of delighting in his provision have begun longing for and chasing after other things to satisfy them in the wilderness the Israelites grumbled about God's provision of manna and quail they began to complain that they had it better in slavery in Egypt they began to long for cucumbers of all things like really I have never longed for a cucumber in my life I think like Like, where have you managed to get to in your life when you're grumbling against God's provision that you're longing for cucumbers? But guys, we can do the equivalent. What we have in Christ is so much better. And yet we can grumble against his provision and begin looking for and longing for fulfillment in other things. We start to think, hey, that was better back then. When I did that, that was enjoyable. Maybe that would satisfy me again. 
This is a warning. If you read this book, or if you hear this, and you respond in your hearts by saying, Lord, I want to hold fast till the end. Holy Spirit, would you help me to hold fast? Help me to keep looking to you, finding my fulfillment in you. I'm sorry that my heart is prone to wonder and look for fulfillment in other things. Lord, I, I want to find my satisfaction in you and you alone. I know that you're more beautiful. I know that you're more glorious. I know that the hope I have in you is better than anything else. Lord, please, I don't want to settle for lesser things. I don't want to fall for the deceitfulness of sin. I'm sorry for the times I have, Lord. I want to find my fulfillment in you. Lord, would you be my everything again? Help me to be open to the challenges and encouragements and corrections of your word. Like if that's the, the nature of your response when you hear this, then I want to encourage you and say, guys, you're in a good place. You're secure. You're secure. You're his house. If that's you, he won't fail you. Look to him again today. Delight in him again. We're going to come to the table in a moment and share communion as we do delight in sins forgiven and conscience cleansed. Delight in the fact that your standing before him is based in the finished work of Jesus and not your ability to obey and, and get it right. Guys, you can't earn it. You can't. If he's got your heart and your longing is for him, your longing is to please him, then you're secure. He's begun a work in you and he's going to see it to completion. You're his house. He's the son who is over you, caring for you, providing for you, sustaining you. When you cry to him, he's going to help you. He's going to deliver you. He's for you. But there's a really sober warning here too. Because if you hear it and you just think, doesn't apply to me. I don't care. I prayed once. I got baptised. I'm secure. I've got my ticket to heaven. I'm in. I'm solid. I can't wait till we skip past these passages and read something happier. Guys, if that's you, and I, I hope it's not, but if it is, I want to appeal to you this afternoon. Don't be led away by the deceitfulness of sin and the hardness of your heart. Today is today. It's a day of salvation. It's a day for forgiveness. It's a day when you can come to him. Please, I want to tell you you're in danger if that's your response. I know this isn't a popular message. I know this isn't like culturally sensitive. I get that. But I want to implore you. Don't let this warning skip off the surface this afternoon. If you're a Christian and you've heard it and you're like, oh Lord... I want to look to you again. 
be encouraged, but do that. Look to him. If you've heard this and, and, and you're ready to walk out the door and say, I didn't come to church to hear that, please, please don't leave without coming to him again, without coming to him and finding forgiveness. I want to pray for us and then we're going to come back to worship.